we're glad you're here. Whether you're right here in this room, sparsely scattered as we are, which is a good thing, or if you're sparsely scattered geographically way over into Colorado or into New Mexico or South Carolina, where I know we have some folks probably tuning in as we speak. So welcome, all of you. We're glad you're here. I decided to do a two-parter on this message because, as I mentioned last week, a pastor that I appreciate, his name is Vody Bauckham, has taught this same basic teaching to colleges, both here in the States and in Africa, because he's on staff now. I believe he's a professor at a Christian college in Africa. And his organizational skills are so good. And I've taught almost everything that's in this collection of materials at some point or other, but rather hodgepodge. They've shown up in different messages, but this one kind of just gives you a Dagwood sandwich. You, have you ever eaten a Dagwood sandwich? You know what those are? It's like a big old honkin' hoagie, and you throw all the good stuff in there. So it's just too big to get in one bite. And that's why this was too big to get in one bite in a one-parter. And so this is part two. If you want to catch last week's, it is actually up on our website now because we edited it and threw it up there for you. So here's the five points just as we get going today. Five points in this two-part series. We covered points one through three last week. The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. That was the first three. Today we're going to look at that report, that means the eyewitnesses report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies. And then fifthly, and they claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. That's a mouthful, and that's quite a sentence, but that's what we're actually unpacking this two-part series is that specific sentence. So today we're going to look at the fourth and fifth parts of this of this specific statement. Say that three times fast. The fourth and fifth points. Fourth, these eyewitnesses report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies. And that second part is just as important as the first on that fourth point. And then fifthly, they claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. So let me give you a little follow-up. This is a very brief follow-up so that you'll kind of have a springboard into today's message if you didn't attend last week. Uh, I want to follow up on this discussion because there are some people that will question the credibility or the validity of the Old and New Testaments because of the manuscript evidence. And yet, I said last week that we have over 25,000 reliable manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts of the Bible. And if you remove all the Old Testament and leave just the New Testament reliable manuscripts, we've got over 6,000 of those. And remember that these manuscripts can date back to within about two decades of the ending of the compilation of the entire New Testament, which is very close to the original sources. And as we looked at in terms of historical documents, that's huge to get that far back and that close to the original sources. And these were copied meticulously. We talked about some of the people whose job it was to make sure that they could come up with guidelines and use those specific methods to make sure they were copying exceptionally meticulously. They were obsessive about it, in fact. They felt that they were the, quote, tradition keepers. And these scribes developed rigorous rules for copying, and they checked and double-checked and triple-checked and even counted from the middle letter of each chapter to make sure that all the letters on one side matched up all the letters on the other side. That's how close they were to making sure that they didn't leave out a single letter. 
Now, I want us to tackle something because I've been looking in the internet a little bit for some of the objections to some of the things that we come up with, and there's a lot of skeptics, and I'll show a little bit later today why being skeptical is not a bad thing. We need to question. All of us should question. But we need to have an open enough mind that as we do question, if we're given good, solid answers, we should be open to accepting those answers, I would hope. But let's deal with something that's called the overzealous monk theory. The overzealous monk theory. This uh, is a theory in which, the skeptics say, there were these overzealous monks during the era of Constantine, that Roman emperor, right around the early 4th century A.D., and these monks decided they were going to alter the manuscripts to fit their agenda. So they basically were sort of rewriting what we would know now as the Bible, and particularly, especially the New Testament, because they had some axes to grind, and they had some things that they wanted to do in order to manipulate others into following them because they were all about power and control. That's a generalized version of where the skeptics come at when they're talking about the overzealous monk theory. Now, let me say, honestly, right off the top, that I think that theory comes across to me as sounding a whole lot more like a Dan Brown novel, a.k.a. Uh, the Da Vinci Code, for example, than it does reality. And I'll unpack that if you'll allow me to explain it just a little bit. First of all, remember that we have 6,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Many of those are fragments, but they corroborate other fragments to make sure that we can compare them and contrast them and make sure that all these have been copied meticulously and the same. So if you're, let me make sure that you are the monk here. I'm going to, now I'm, I'm hereby giving you, I'm deputizing you as monks. <clears throat> Got it? Do you, do you feel monkish? Good. <laughs> I'm glad. Now, if you're a, a monk, and if you're living 300 years after the original manuscripts were written, copied, and distributed, then here's what you'd have to do. You'd have to go out and find all 6,000 of these manuscripts. All right, that's your first task. And then you'd have to surreptitiously change all of them, and either you'd have to change them so well as a forger covering up something else and, and covering on top of it, like with your whiteout, which I don't think existed for papyrus, which means you probably have to substitute a brand new one for the old one, but make sure it looks exactly like the old one, and do it without getting caught, because you'd have to be excellent forgers, and you'd have to be heist experts. So that's what you'd have to do. Then you'd have to organize your conspiracy among your fellow monks because it's not one of you. You know, I'm, Michael, you're fast, but I don't think you could get all 6,000 unless you had some help. So you'd have to engage some of these other monks in the room, but you'd have to make sure that your conspiracy was exactly the same and that you never showed your ink work so that you wouldn't get caught and that you never took pictures of it with your cell phones. Probably not a problem. Then you'd have to also learn three languages besides Greek. Now, many people were multilingual back then, but you'd have to learn three good languages. Why is that? Because by the time the 3rd century and 4th century were coming about, the gospel had spread, and because Jesus had said, go therefore into all the world, make disciples of all nations, all tribes, all tongues, there's something about these different people groups that's perplexing. They all speak different languages, which means that there are new manuscripts being copied, but they're being translated into these other Languages like Syriac and Coptic and Latin. So you'd have to learn those three things so that when you're gathering up these manuscripts, not just the 6,000, but now add to that these other copies that have been translated, you'd have to be able to also make sure that your additions or subtractions match up exactly between these three languages and Greek as you had done in the original 6,000. Is this sounding like a daunting task so far? 
<laughs> I'm thinking, yeah, probably is. Now, you'd also have to get all the early church fathers' manuscripts because the early church fathers, which started in the first century, had this pesky habit. They would start copying and commenting on all these different manuscripts. And they copied so much and were so meticulous in their commentaries about them that if you were to collect only, if all you had was the early church fathers' manuscripts and you didn't even have the original 6,000 manuscripts, you could replicate the entire New Testament with the exception of 11 verses. That's how much of the New Testament appears in the early church fathers' writings. So is this sounding even more daunting? Well, I think so. But there's more. So here's what you need to do next. If you're an overzealous Greek monk, which you are now, because I've deputized you, develop your conspiracy. Don't tell a soul outside your conspiracy group. Don't get caught. Learn three additional languages besides Greek. Alter all 6,000 of the original plus all the translated manuscripts in existence. Change them. Get them back into their original positions before anybody knew they had been taken. And now you'd have to find all the copies of the writings of the early church fathers and alter their commentaries so that they each match what you changed in the New Testament manuscripts. Can you see why I would say that this notion of an overzealous monk theory sounds more like a Dan Brown novel of fiction than the actual history? Because I think it is. I think it's fictitious. And I think when you start really analyzing how these manuscripts came into existence and how they got distributed so early, you'd have a very difficult time. Vody Bauckham is actually a little more facetious than I am. I'm trying to be kind about it. He said, if you believe this, you believe in fantasy. That's probably true, though. And this is a good time to insert, by the way. If you believe a work of fiction like that, then you might also be susceptible to believing works of fiction which would be considered things like the apocryphal Gospels, things that they've uncovered that are the newer Gospels that people got excited about, like the Gospel of Thomas, for example. Those were clearly identified as being Gnostic Gospels written much later than the originals which came to within two decades, except for the book of Revelation, as I mentioned last week. And there were some strange things in there that sounded like these, this Gnosticism was trying to creep in and they were trying to put their agenda into it, which is why they were not allowed into the canonized scriptures. For example, and just one crazy example of what happens in the Gospel of Thomas, evidently when Jesus was a boy, this is why I think it's fiction, some kids were picking on him and they started to throw rocks at him. And he thought, oh, well, I can take care of that. And so he just turned the rocks into birds and made them fly away. Sounds a little out there, doesn't it? That's because it is out there, because it's a work of fiction, and it's why it was not canonized. And the Gospel of Thomas and other apocryphal Gospels, or any new Gospels that they may uncover now, are not to be included in the canon. Now, we've dealt with the overzealous monk theory, so let's get into the good stuff, shall we? So far, with points one through three, we've got the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses, during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses, which means there are corroborative sources. And that's a great history book. So far, we've got a great history book. But that's not all. It goes much better than that. Let's get into the last two points, and you'll see why I think it gets even better. These eyewitnesses who wrote within the lifetime of other eyewitnesses claimed that they wrote supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies. So here's where we get to dive back into our primary text that we started with, and that is 2 Peter chapter 1. So in whatever form you've got your Bible with you, if you do, uh, turn to 2 Peter, and you can follow along when I get to some of these passages. 
it says here in verses 17 and 18 of 2 Peter 1, He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice. Heard it with their own ears. They heard this voice from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So let's recap and add Peter's words, understanding what we have now, to the first three points that we looked at last week. Here's the recap. In the Bible, uh, just repeat these after me. I'll do it one phrase at a time, if you want to. Not required, but you can if you want. In the Bible, we have a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses that report supernatural events. Very good. And notice that the word here is supernatural and not superhuman. Superhuman would be like athletic highlights on the news. They are human, but they did things that most humans can't do. But he's talking about supernatural, which means no human could do these things. That's what Peter's talking about in the verses we just read from 2 Peter. The events Peter is talking about here are supernatural events. He's specifically talking, as we mentioned last week, about the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was transfigured, which means he was transformed into something more beautiful, into a completely different form than anybody had previously seen him in. He was elevated to a brand new form. And the event is recorded for us in three of the Gospels, Matthew chapter 17, Mark chapter 9, and also Luke chapter 9. So on that mountain, the sacred mountain that Peter talks about, Jesus, who took Peter, James, and John, the inner circle of the twelve, up onto the mountain with him, they were visited by both Moses and Elijah. Well, why does it have to be supernatural? Because they were dead by then. So it's kind of important that this is a supernatural event if they were going to be visited by two people who were previously dead. The Bible is filled with supernatural events. The Bible is not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not just a rule book written by a religious order attempting to put people in line with some moralistic teachings. It's a reliable collection of historical documents, and the eyewitnesses who wrote it make claims like Jesus, who has healed the sick. And many times, you can see lots of these healings in the New Testament especially. He walked on water. He stilled a storm. He fed 5,000 people, starting with just a little lad's lunch. And then here's the pièce de résistance. Jesus was dead on Friday, but he's alive three days later. These are supernatural events. It's not just superhuman. And they're not simply the, reli the, the reliable writings of a religious community. These are eyewitness events that are beyond anything that people have been able to previously explain. Second half of number four, this is important. These supernatural events took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies. Not like Nostradamus prophecies. You know, those are the things that are so cryptic that you have to wait a whole bunch of time and then you look back at them and people start to piece them together and think, oh, I think he was talking about Hitler and I think he was talking about this event and that event. They're really cryptic. We're talking about much more specific than Nostradamus. Or not like faith healer prophecies. I'll give you an example. Somebody in this room is suffering with back pain at this very moment. Well, duh. <laughs> uh, 
I mean, if you get a room large enough, you can say prophecies like that, and you're pretty well sure that somebody out there is going to match whatever you're talking about. This is not the kind of prophecies that we're talking about that are fulfilled in the New Testament in this supernatural eyewitness events. Specific prophecies. Let's look at the one just even in Isaiah 53. Now, these prophecies that we're talking about include this prophecy section. Over 700 years, by the way, prior to Jesus' birth, Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah will be born and that he will become a suffering servant. There are these wonderful servant songs in that passage of Scripture. They're gorgeous. And it's very different than the idea of a conquering king, as most people would have thought about in terms of their Messiah, their Savior, who would be coming in to overthrow a government and take over that specific area of the world. Psalm 22 is another one, and this is very perplexing. I've looked up a lot of different articles on this, and there are many people today, skeptics, who would say, oh, wait a minute, but there are not really any good, reliable, older sources of Psalm 22 available, only some fragments. Yeah, but remember that there were 6,000 manuscripts and fragments of manuscripts, and because they were so meticulously copied that even if you find number 600, that was going all the way back to the closest, oldest, original manuscripts they could find at the time to do their copying. So if that 600th copy contains Psalm 22, we can rest assured that it appeared in the originals. And it would be very strange for them to have suddenly extracted Psalm 22 and then put in another one, or that they just had to insert one and then paginate differently and make sure that they were renumbering all the rest of the Psalms. It just wouldn't have worked that way. Psalm 22, since chapter separations and verses weren't really added until later, then we can see why back in a Jewish synagogue they wouldn't have been able to say, everybody turn in your scroll to Psalm 22. They didn't have that in the earliest forms of these. They were scrolls. Well, how did they identify them? It would be kind of like what we used to do back in the old Baptist hymnal when I was a kid growing up. They would say, let's give the first line, and everybody would identify that. They would know that. So they would say, find the scroll that starts with Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani. What would that translate to? Well, it translates to, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Hmm. If that sounds familiar, there's good reason for that, because that's one of the things Jesus said on the cross just before he died. And many of us will recognize the statement, but here's the thing. Because Jesus spoke these words while on the cross, he was reciting the first line of a song that they knew well, because that was their hymn book. They would have sung Psalm 22 often. So when he says that first line of a song, what do you think they're thinking about right after he says the first line? Yeah, they're thinking about the other lines that follow. If I were to say to you, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, what comes to your mind next? That saves a wretch like me. I saw you mouthing it. You've got it. Many of you know that. It, that's what comes to mind because it's so ingrained in us that we know the next line. So they're thinking about lyrics that follow that first line. Let me just go through and pick out a few of them because it would be lengthy if I did the whole thing. The whole thing is amazing, though, if you read through it. Verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish? And then skipping to verse 7, All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. That sounds like something was happening around Jesus. Why would he say that? Because he's hanging on a cross. When he says, I am poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint. 
they would be literally out of joint by hanging on a cross where they had nailed his hands and feet. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. That's verse 14b. After he died, remember, a guard thrust a spear into his side to make sure that he was completely dead. And what came out? Both blood and water. Kind of sounds like a description of what's happening here. 700 years, or 1,000 years, I should say, prior to Jesus, because this is Psalm 22. Another one, verse 16, dogs surround me. Dogs was a term for Gentiles back then. What were the Roman guards? It would be Gentiles. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and feet. That's specific. They divide my clothes among them. That happened. And they cast lots for my garment. That happened specifically. 1,000 years before Jesus was born, these prophecies were written, and they apply so specifically to Jesus Christ. We have no other conclusion, I would think, than to say, wow, that really sounds like that's a prophecy being fulfilled by one person on a cross in relation to this stuff. And by the way, for the skeptics who might say, oh, wait a minute, no, he could have been talking about any other kind of crucifixion back then. Well, no, but crucifixion hadn't yet been invented at the time that psalm was written. Now, that's where a lot of the skeptics would like to say, but Psalm 22 is not included in that. It's missing. And so they want to make sure that they would say that Psalm 22 was written in the first century after they had seen these things happen. And so then they wanted to insert it back into that. We have all those 6,000 plus reliable manuscripts, folks. Make sure that we understand there was corroboration and there were correct manuscripts to be compared and contrasted with one another long before they got to that conclusion saying that they had to have inserted Psalm 22 later on. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have all that corroborative evidence. What a great find. Now, we have in the Bible, here's a recap, a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses that report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies like the ones that I've just mentioned. And when I previously preached some of these kinds of materials about 18, 19 months ago, I had actually given that wonderful illustration about what would happen if you could get enough of these dollar coins to spread them all across Texas and they would be two feet deep and you'd put a red mark on only one of them and pick out one and the, the uh, odds of your picking out the correct coin in all of Texas would be the same amount of odds for only eight of the specific prophecies to have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Mind-boggling. So that's why Peter can write this in verse 19. In 2 Peter 1, because of that experience, he's referring again to the Mount of Transfiguration, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. In other words, we experienced some of this firsthand, so now we have even greater confidence than we had prior to the experience on the Great Mountain. He says, you must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns, and Christ, the morning star, shines in your hearts. Now, pay attention to fulfilled prophecy as if you were out in a dark place, almost like many of our neighborhoods were a week and a half or two weeks ago when we had the great storm that came through, which is why we couldn't meet in this building last Sunday because it had a huge bunch of winds, knocked down trees, knocked down power poles, and we were without electricity. It was dark. Joy and Callie and I took a walk in our neighborhood to see all the trees that were down, and it was dark in the evenings, except for an occasional sound of a generator here and there, and you'd see a little lone spotlight somewhere, 
in somebody's house, the lucky ones that still had refrigerator. But that's what Peter is saying we need to do. We need to look at these prophecies as somebody who's standing out in the dark. You know, you can see even just a lit match from a long way away, can't you? If it's truly dark. We did that in Carlsbad Caverns as a kid when I visited that, about 10 years old. And they turned off all the lights. They said, make sure that you're seated and that you're not standing up because you'll become very disoriented when we turn these lights out because there is no way you can find out which, which way is up. <laughs> and they were right. It was pitch black. And then he let us adjust to the blackness for just a minute, and then he lit a single match way off in the distance. It was amazing how bright that was. Peter says, look to these prophecies like somebody who's in the dark, and you're looking way off in the distance at that light. But keep staring at it. Keep looking at it until finally the day dawns. It's not enough that we're only looking at the lamp. See if it's going to get a little bit closer. But what we really need is for that day to dawn. We need the light of the world to dawn in our lives so that we grasp what those prophecies are about. We need Jesus. We need Jesus, the light of our world. And we need to put our whole faith on him because that's what the prophecies were pointing at. So even if you're still not quite convinced that the Bible is completely reliable. Just look at all these prophecies. Oh, taste and see. Give them a taste. Try them out. Look ahead. Read about them. Find out what they pointed to and how they were fulfilled. And then Peter says also in verses 20 and 21 of 2 Peter 1, Above all, he says, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, these prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit or carried along by the Holy Spirit, as it says in some translations. And they spoke from God. That's why we can see so many times in Scripture things like, Thus saith the Lord, or, And God said, or, And God spake unto Moses. It was the words of God. These people who are writing these prophecies, many of these eyewitnesses, are writing because they truly believe that these are being inspired by God himself. They're God's words. They're not man's. So what would indicate that these words were in fact inspired by God? Well, how about all these fulfilled prophecies? All that Peter is starting to refer to in this passage. These fulfilled prophecies should cause our jaws to drop. Our hearts should beat a little faster. They ought to cause our pulse to race as we think of very specific events like Jesus' miracles and then his death and his burial, and his resurrection, and all those resurrection appearances to hundreds of people. Now, there's still the skeptic, and there will always be skeptics. There were skeptics in Jesus' day. There were people who got fed by him on a hillside and yet walked away. There will still be skeptics today. And there will be some who will say, well, I just still can't quite bring myself to buy into this idea that the Scripture is inspired by God. So I just can't trust it. You say, well, why not? Because it was written by man. And Vody Bauckham said something that I had to think about for a minute, but I think he's right. He said, well, with that logic, then let me respectfully suggest you can't believe anything that you read. Why not, you ask? Because it's written by man. <laughs> if we can't believe that something could be inspired because of eyewitness reports, and if there are enough corroborative eyewitness reports so that the evidence is so overwhelming that you have to say, man, I have to take this seriously. There are just far too many reports for me to ignore then you can't really uh, believe in anything that's been written because everything that's been written in our human existence was written by a human being. So, 
Does that mean we should only trust you for the truth? If you're a skeptic and you say, no, I can't trust the Bible. Are you the one who knows without a doubt? You can say, no, I know without a doubt that this was not written. Well, isn't that a dogmatic statement as well? Isn't that a statement that you're asking me to believe? See, if we don't apply the skepticism to our own methods, but we're willing to apply them to other people, then we're sort of discrediting ourselves, as Bodie Bauckham would suggest, and I think he's really onto something there. Most of the skeptical comments that I've read on the Internet, and I've read quite a few of them, aren't terribly logical at many points because they aren't willing to apply the same skeptical standards in evaluating their own methods. And I think you're probably in agreement with me that we live in a culture where we want to discount anything that doesn't match up with my opinion. Because I like my opinion. Most of the time I think I'm right. And I really want to surround myself with other people who also would support my decision that I'm right. And so we tend to get into our echo chambers. I've heard that used a lot this last 16 months. And we'll surround ourselves only with those people who agree with everything we say rather than stepping outside of our echo chamber, outside of our tribe, and willingly look at and read and listen to other people's perspectives to test them. And we ought to be willing to do that. We ought to be willing to ask good questions. Now, if you saw these events, if you were with some of these other eyewitnesses, what else could you say about the inspiration of the Scriptures? If you were with Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration, you wouldn't say, well, this was a very unusual event. It was a superhuman event. No, you'd have to say, this is not like anything I've ever experienced before. This was supernatural. How else can I describe it? But I'm, I'm describing it to you as accurately as I know how because I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. I heard the voice with my own ears. That's how they would have to describe it because they were there. It's okay to be skeptical, as I've mentioned. I think good skepticism is healthy in good scholarship. We ought to be skeptical. Skepticism comes from a Greek word that means inquiring or to look into. We should ask good questions. However, when skepticism is carried so far that we eliminate any evidence that doesn't match what we have predetermined is acceptable evidence, then we have moved away from being just skeptical to being cynical. Skepticism versus cynicism. I like uh, this quote, and I'm going to reveal the source after I've read it. This quote comes from Jamie Hale. He says, cynics don't like information that contradicts their belief system. They reject ideas based on dogmatic views and exhibit adherence to doctrine over rational inquiry. Evidence is not a concern for cynics. Cynicism is drastically different than skepticism. But, and here's the thing, who is Jamie Hale? Does that sound like some sort of a theologian trying to determine what we should or shouldn't accept as evidence? Well, he's actually writing for the Skeptical Inquirer, the magazine for science and reason. Because he was appealing to his fellow scientists and fellow reasoners that they ought to be able to skeptically ask good questions and not just simply exclude that which they don't want to allow in as evidence. So when somebody says, and this is, I've had good discussions with folks about this, when they say, I only look at things through the scientific method, then I would like to say, okay, good, good for you. Can you describe what the scientific method is? They would say, well, simply put, it should be observable, measurable, and repeatable. 
You ask questions, you do the research, you develop a hypothesis, which is an educated guess. You test that hypothesis. You test your experiment to see if it supports your hypothesis and to see if it's repeatable. And you draw conclusions from your data, right? That's good. That's good scientific method. I agree with that. I agree with that, especially if you're trying to come up with really efficient and better braking systems for my automobile. I'm glad that they're applying the scientific method there instead of going, hope it works. Yes, I want them to do that and to get lots of feedback and to keep drawing new conclusions and getting more feedback and getting better and better at what they do. That's great. Or converting sunlight into electrical energy. We need the scientific method for that. Or developing more effective ways to treat cancer. I'm grateful that we're so much more targeted and we've seen so many more good results from that kind of science. I love it. However, and there's always a big however. This is the big however. However, history is not observable, measurable, or repeatable. That's perplexing. You don't use the scientific method to prove historical events. I can't go back a thousand years and stand with the people who wrote Psalm 22 and observe them and see if it's repeated. I, I can't do that. So if you're asking for scientific evidence to prove historical events, then it just doesn't work that way. I think we have to come up with a new solution to how we're discovering what we think about that. How do we evaluate historical events like what's presented in the Bible? Well, for historical events, we can use the evidentiary method like you would in a courtroom. The evidentiary method is evidence-based. It's an analysis approach that accepts data from different sources, including eyewitnesses. Listen to this quote from a lawyer. He says, a witness is an irreplaceable evidentiary method. If a witness was indeed present in the scene and witnessed the facts to be verified and is required to clarify factual relations, the court shall not readily give up the examination of such a witness. I tend to agree. <laughs> if I were involved in a crime and I wanted to be uh, justified or vindicated because somebody was giving a false testimony and there were three of you who witnessed that and you could step in and clarify the events and get me off the hook, I would want those witnesses to be allowed as evidence because they saw it with their own eyes. They heard it with their own ears. They were eyewitnesses. So if we're trying to reason our way to truth using the evidentiary method, here's what we would want to do. We'd ask questions like, okay, is this source reliable? Is there anything in their past that would cause us to doubt their reliability, or are they a fairly truthful person by and large? Uh, how about the corroboration of sources? Are there enough sources around for us to check it out instead of just being one person? That's why in the Bible they would say that you needed at least two witnesses to be able to bring an accusation against somebody. You want to compare accuracy and compatibility. That's what we have in the four Gospels, by the way. You'd want to ask about both the external and internal evidence that supports these sources. And you would ask questions like, well, who were the witnesses? Are they reliable? Are they trustworthy? Is there any other evidence that contradicts their testimony? In other words, can it be falsifiable? That's why Paul would say that even by the time he was writing his letters to the Corinthians, many of those people who had died were gone to heaven, but a whole lot that were still left over, there's probably over 300 of them if you do the math, that were still alive at the time he wrote that, which means there are people that you could say, oh, that's wrong, Paul. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to force that. I'm going to write about it and say that that's out of there. It's not falsifiable. It was actually corroborated. So when you ask these kinds of questions in an evidentiary way of looking at historical events, including those 
presented to us in the scriptures by eyewitnesses, here's what you get. You get things like a collection of documents that was written on three different continents in three languages by over 40 authors, 66 volumes addressing hundreds of topics coming together in a cohesive unit telling one redemptive story written over a period of 1,500 years. And then the early church fathers would write about that, quote from it, and comment on it so much that you could replicate the entire New Testament with the exception of 11 verses. That's what you get when you're asking these kinds of questions with the evidentiary method. So when we apply the evidentiary method, here's what we've got. Uh, I'll read each line, and you can repeat it if you would choose to do so. A reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses that report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. And that is why I choose to believe the Bible. Let's pray. Father, it is incredible to me how much effort and time people went through to collect all the information that we now have at our disposal. And I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that we have so many people to compare and contrast, to dig in to the evidence, to find out what they can about all that we've looked at for this last two sessions. And I'm grateful that we have a Bible that points us to the one person who can solve our greatest problem, and that problem is sin. And I'm grateful that all those prophecies came true in the person of Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life, died on a cross, as an atonement for the sins of everybody who would allow him to pour his grace all over them. And I pray that so many more people would do that as they see that everything that's been put down for us in the Scriptures came true in Christ. He's the only one who has conquered death once and for all time, the only one who was eternal, who could take care of our eternal problem, the only one who could be the unblemished lamb in fulfillment of so many prophecies. And I pray that people would be open to your Holy Spirit's prompting through the Scripture because you speak to us so clearly through your Word. And I thank you that we have that Bible, the record of your revelation to us, the record of Jesus Christ who changes lives and is continuing to change lives today. I pray that you'll continue to change our lives as we trust you with them. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.